we all get kicked out and brought back up, even if you try. Um, well, let me echo just coming off of that, Jeff's uh, gratitude to all those uh, volunteers that showed up every single day this past week. Um, as with anything in church, uh, that camp is nothing without uh, the sweat and love and passion of all the volunteers that came out. Um, one of which uh, is Pastor Jeff's wife, Mary, right, who with fourth and fifth graders, uh, was fourth and fifth grade girls, served them this whole past week. And I mention her because uh, we want to keep her in prayer. Uh, tomorrow, Mary goes for abdominal surgery. Uh, there's been kind of some complications she's been working through, and surgery was kind of always on the table, and some things happened that now it's, uh, it's tomorrow, and it had to be brought up tomorrow afternoon. And so even just that being on her mind, her coming each day, just again to pour into those fourth and fifth grade girls um, leading up to that. But we want to keep Mary uh, in prayer tomorrow afternoon uh, for that procedure. Well, this morning, uh, we continue in our summer series in the book of Psalms. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to take them out. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab a uh, blue pew Bible, uh, and you'll find Psalm 116, which is where we'll be today, on page 510. Um, this book of Psalms is a book that is the soundtrack of the Bible, right? 150 songs that do this masterful job, as we spoke about last week, of appealing to both left-brained people and right-brained people. And that if, these, if this book rightly read, it's going to make you think about God, and it's going to make you feel deeply for God. Probably better and, and a better balance of those two than any other book in the Bible. And it's, it it's effectively speaks of who God is, like who is God, like even singing this morning, just repeat, like, you are good, you are good, you are good. And then also, it talks about what he has done, what he promised to do, and it's yet truth expressed with emotion, right? It is music. It's meant to hit this depth of emotion that you won't just get if you just, um, just kind of say it and read it monotone. It's this, it's this really emotive book in the book of Psalms. And so that's why um, we say they are perfect for both public worship and private devotion. Uh, more than any other book, you might not know it, but more than any other book, we proclaim the Psalms week in and week out via song. Many of the songs, if not most of them, are based upon Psalms. And yet, at the same time, there is perhaps no better book for you in, in, in just being alone with God, opening your Bible to read in private devotion. So this summer, maybe you have some trips planned. Maybe you'll be out of town on a weekend, or you'll just be kind of outside your routine. I mean, no better book to just open it up and read the Psalms for your own private devotion and edification. So this summer, what we're doing is we're looking at a psalm from um, each of really six main categories that you can fit all 150 psalms into. And so we talked about them last week. Um, praise, thanksgiving, lament, wisdom, confidence, divine kingship. Uh, every psalm you can really fit into one of those categories. And so what we're doing this summer is we're just going category by category, taking a different psalm. Uh, so last week we started with praise, and this morning we go to a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, this category, very similar to Psalms, and that really they just boast about God and, and the redemptive work that he does. But Thanksgiving Psalms take it a level deeper in that they become personal. Okay, so they celebrate who God is and the work of redemption, but they celebrate it in, in your own story. In the own personal history of the psalmist, that's what differentiates a psalm of thanksgiving from a psalm of praise. 
And so I want to begin this morning and just talk about gratitude. Okay, gratitude. It's this universally, universally positive ethic. Like, um, regardless of religious background or non-background, like, people will recognize and say that um, to be grateful is good and right. Like, there's nothing, like, nobody rails against gratitude, right? Like, who would do that? We all know in our being that the idea of being grateful for anything is a good and right thing. My question is, what are signs or, or maybe markers that you're a grateful person? The psalm we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 116, it's going to show us that true gratitude is displayed not just in what you say, but in what you do. That true gratitude is marked by living a life of gratitude. And so we know this in any area of life. So a couple examples, right? A couple weeks ago, we had 4th of July. Days leading up to or on the day itself, it was common to hear or to, uh, or to see someone write on social media that they are grateful to live in a free country like the United States, where democracy reigns. In fact, I wrote a blog for our church website on what it means for the church to, to interact with the 4th of July. Like, like a church should be deeply grateful to be in a country where we can freely worship. We are grateful for our country. We don't worship or idolize it, but we are grateful that God's given us a gift of free worship, that we're not worrying about who's about to kick the door, the de- kick the door down. Now, these words of gratitude that we've seen and we heard and maybe we said ourselves, they should be backed up by action, right? So personally, that's done by being a dutiful, law-abiding citizen in a country you claim to be grateful for, right? So if I'm saying all these things, how we should be grateful and this and that, and yet you find out that um, I never pay my taxes, and you find out that I'm involved in all kinds of illegal dealings, and it comes out that uh, my salary through Grace Church is getting funneled to ISIS. <laughs> all right, through the Grand Caymans. All right, that would, what would that reveal? That would reveal, among a lot of other things, uh, that I'm not truly grateful for America. Regardless of what I said, my actions become a direct contradiction. All right, another example. So let's say you have a teenager, and a teenager goes to his or her parents, and they say, listen, I am just grateful for all you guys do for me. All you guys have sacrificed how hard you work to set me up for success. All you provide me and how you've loved me through uh, different stages of, and seasons of rebellion. And they say this to their parents. And yet, day in and day out, they uh, fail to respect the rules of the household. They are constantly working to deceive their parents, to steal from their parents. Like, what would you say to that? Well, that's great. That's what you said. But by how you're living day in, day out, it's a direct contradiction. Like, gratitude is shown to be legit by how you live, not just by what you say. And so that's the backdrop of Psalm 116. The the author is unknown to us, uh, but he's going to show us that true thanksgiving True gratitude towards God is not just what you say, but it's a way of life. It's word that then gets backed up with deed. And so we're going to read this entire psalm up front. I would encourage you to follow along with me in your Bibles, or it'll also be on the screen behind me. This is Psalm 116. I love the Lord. Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore I will call on him as long as I live. 
The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of shawl laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Of the 150 psalms, um, several, if not most, can be placed within Israel's history relatively easily. A lot of the psalms, we know who the author is. Um, Some tell us at the heading kind of what's the backdrop, historical backdrop of these kind of events that are being talked about. Um, Or others, just based on reading the psalm itself, you can have a confident handle on what's this speaking about. When in history, when in the history of the Old Testament is this referring to? Um, Most, you can do that but not Psalm 116. It's unique in that not only do we not know who wrote it, but there's nothing clear, there's no clear indications in the psalm itself that speaks to, oh, it's, it's talking about this event in Israel's history, or, or it's referring to this person or this time period. And, and as I got to the end of just preparing this, I, I think that's intentional. Like, I don't think God forgot to let us know who wrote Psalm 116. I think it's intentional because, because when it comes to what it speaks about, this deeply personal account of God's redemptive work, it's universal. Like the words in this psalm are not credited to any one person because I think it could be written by every person. Every believer who has experienced saving grace can and should echo what this guy just said in Psalm 116. Like, only grace can spark a psalm like that. And with that said, the psalmist shows that true gratitude is a way of life. So, in this psalm, he gives uh, three main pledges. Three main pledges of what I call grateful living. That church, we would do well to see this morning and then lay on top of our lives to see if these pledges are evident in our own life. So we'll get going. First pledge of grateful living is to trust in the provision of the Lord. Trust in the provision of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him As long as I live, a trust in the provision of the Lord. And then all around this pledge in the the surrounding verses, the psalmist just is giving his motivations for why that's his pledge. 
right? The start of this psalm gives a, gives a little indication as to how deeply personal this is going to be. When he just starts with, I love the Lord. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not knowledge. It's not that, okay, a believer knows about God and the unbeliever doesn't know about God. It's not the difference. It's not what distinguishes us. What distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever is love, affections. A man or woman of God is someone who says, I love that which I know about God. And love becomes the surest of evidences, right? Where, where God knows everything about us. He knows us inside and out. And we are confident that he knows we love him. Like I've said before, you, you know who knows everything about God more than you do, more than I do? More than the smartest theologian in the world? Satan. Satan knows more about God than anybody else, but he hates it. He hates that which he knows. And so being a believer is not just about knowledge, it's about affection. Uh, likewise, many people, and, and perhaps some of you even sitting in this room, you, you don't hate God or you don't maybe hate that which you know, but if you're honest, you, you just don't really love him either. Like you don't, you're not trying to be rude about it or mean about it, you're you just completely honest. You just don't really care that much. You hear about these things, you see songs being sung, and there's just nothing stirring inside of you. Again, you're not trying to be difficult. It's just in your inner being, that, and then you know, it's just kind of like whatever. You're not sure what to think, maybe. There's just kind of no affection, and you're wrestling through it. But, but, but the Christian is someone who can say along with this psalmist, when you're alone and in prayer, and it's just you and God, that you can say, I love you, Lord who can affirm that deep down in your bones and you're not ashamed about it and you don't feel weird about it. And listen, it's not about personality. It's not about uh, you're someone who generally says I love you more. Like we know we're all across the board there. Like we all meet somebody who um, an hour later they're dropping L-bombs to you, right? Like they love you like already and you're like that's little, that's little, that's all fast, all right? And then there's others that you can go years and years and you'll never hear that word. So it's not about personality, but it's about a deeply rooted reality that when you're alone before God, you can say, I love you, Lord. And why love? Why do we say this? Why do we feel this? And the psalmist tells you right off the bat, because he heard my voice and my plea. Love for God is not blind. It's not this fingers crossed behind your back and hoping it works out. It's because when we called out to him, he heard us. The author writes, he gives you this picture. He says, God inclined his ear to us. You get this picture of a loved one leaning down to uh, a family member or a friend on their deathbed and, and they can't quite hear what they're saying. And so they lean their ear in and say, wait, what did you say? Say it again, and you get close. You, you move towards them. You incline your ear to them. That's what he's saying, what the God of the universe has done to us. There's a few psalms written by a man named David. Uh, actually, a lot of psalms written by a man named David, but in a few of them, he has this phrase he keeps coming back to. And it speaks to something similar to this when David says, Who am I that you are mindful of me? Like, who am I that when I, when, like, you hear me when I call? 
There are six billion people in this planet. We are so small, so insignificant. Who am I that when I cry out, you, the God of the universe, is mindful of me? Like how big and powerful and loving and merciful are you that you care about my little pathetic voice? Like just dwelling on that ought to lead us to worship. That our God is so big that he hears even the smallest, quietest of desperate groans. And whatever was happening to this author, it seems that he was snatched from the jaws of death by the Lord. Verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. There was no way out. This is a picture of rock bottom where hope is gone. And it's a scary place to be when you feel like the walls are just closing in. And in that place, a prayer gets shot up into the darkness. Like something in him propelled him to call on the name of the Lord. And I love the short simplicity of his prayer. Lord, deliver my soul. It's not a long, drawn-out prayer that's full of big words and flattery. It's not this formal, impressive, concocted prayer that God answers. It was real, and it was desperate, and it was simple. God does not just respond to impressive-sounding prayers. He responds to real ones. And when you're at rock bottom... Often, all you can eke out is, Lord, deliver my soul and trust in his provision. In this prayer, there is not one redundant syllable, and yet there's not one lacking either. I've quoted this woman before. Her name is Corey Tenboom. Probably saying that wrong. She's a Dutch Christian who was imprisoned and sent to a concentration camp for helping Jews escape the Nazis during World War II. And she has a quote, you've probably heard it, maybe you just don't know, is attributed to her. She says, in the midst of being in this concentration camp, she writes, you can never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. It's not that moment until you realize Everything's gone. All I have is Jesus Christ. That's the same moment that you're affirmed. All I need is Jesus Christ. And then we see verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And so I want you to think about that. Here's where Psalms ought to make you think. Because we're church people, right? We read Psalms often and we see that. God is gracious. God is righteous. God is merciful. And it doesn't like move us really. Like, yeah, that's, that's just common Psalm uh, talk. And you just kind of move to the next verse. But do you see what he just said? He said, back to back, God is gracious. And God is righteous. Think about this with me. Back to back, God gives unmerited favor. And yet God is completely righteous. He's just, he can do no wrong. How do these two things go together? How could he write that back to back? 
How can God scandalously give life to sinners who have rebelled against him and yet not go against his nature of being just and right? Listen, it's not right to, to reward rebellion. We would see that happen in the world and say, that is unjust, that is wrong, that person is guilty, they deserve to be punished. How can the God of the universe do these two things back to back? That's why I think the psalmist is writing this. He's just stunned by it himself. He's grateful for it, but he's kind of unsure. How can God do that? But we know what the psalmist didn't know when he was writing this. Church, we know how God did it. God's grace and God's righteousness come crashing together at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God loved us so much that he sent his only son to the cross to die for us. And where God hated sin so much that he had to send his only son to the cross to die for us. It's at the cross where love and justice meet and they explode. It's where we can be confident that God hears our voices and he delivers our souls. It's where we can know that God can be gracious and God can be just. And he did it for you at the cost of his son. And it's this confidence, this experience of God hearing and working and saving is why we pledge to trust in his provision as long as we live. To come before the Lord regularly in prayer and call on him. A prayerful life is evidence of a grateful life. A prayerful life is evidence of grateful living. So church, are we calling on him? Are you praying to him? It is a sign of gratitude. And let's just be honest, if you're not praying, and we all ebb and flow with this, right? Nobody's like, I'm killing it at prayer always. Like it's a constant struggle, but just let's know that a lack of prayer, a true lack of prayer is ultimately a sign of no gratitude because he loves hearing the voice of his children. And when we know what he's done, that gives us the confidence to say, and I'm going to keep calling on him. I'm going to keep trusting in his provision. That's the first pledge. Moving on, second pledge of grateful living this psalmist makes is to personally walk before the Lord. Verses 8 and 9, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Um, There's an old saying, by a man's walk is understood his way of life. Um, And by walk, they're not talking about like your physical posture. Like we all have our walk too. He's not talking about that, right? He's talking about your walk and and your, your decisions, your actions, that they will ultimately point to what you think is most important in life. Uh, maybe a more modern way of saying that, although now this is becoming increasingly outdated in today's technological age, but a more modern way is show me a man's calendar and checkbook, and I'll tell you what they love and care most about in this world. You just show me those two things, and I can probably tell you what you care most about in this world. Today, postmodern world, we need to update that, right? Like, show me a man's Google calendar and online banking statements, and I'll tell you what they love most. But the bottom line is this, and perhaps for many of us, it's a sobering one. 
that despite what we may say, what others may hear us say, we are truly thankful for our salvation if we live in obedience to what God desires. Like Jesus plainly told his disciples, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says, don't just tell me. It's good and right to tell him. I love you, Lord, right? I believe in you. But he says, but you really want to come after me? Take up your cross and follow me. To love God is to follow him. To walk as he walked. To endure suffering and stay on the path despite the presence of affliction, right? We just went through 10 weeks just saying that over and over again in the book of 1 Peter. In our exile series. To endure the path of suffering and stay on that path despite the presence of affliction. To walk in this newness of life that grace provides. To put the gift to use. Okay, so when was the last time you, you just you nailed it when you gave somebody a gift? Can you think back to that moment? Like somebody's birthday or a Christmas, like you just, like it feels good to give a really good gift, right? Like maybe it's wrong that that feels good, but like you just know I nailed it, right? Like that is what they wanted, they clearly, and I just went over the top and I gave it to them. And they received this gift and they are like unbelievably grateful. Like thank you so much. Like this is the best gift I've ever had. What would happen if you know that person enough to know That gift just went to the shelf and collected dust. It never got used. They never went on that trip. They never used that new camera. I don't even know. But but whatever this gift that they were so grateful for, like made this whole big deal about it, never gets used. What would that tell you as a person who gave them the gift? And not really grateful for it. If you don't use a gift, what's the point in saying all these things that you're you're so thankful for it? And the gift that we are given in Jesus Christ is meant to be lived out. Yes, gratitude spoken, but gratitude lived is the indicator which we're really grateful for it. And the true man or woman of God, when they live their lives, they consider themselves in his presence, Like we live not for man or what man thinks of us, but how God thinks of us. We live for an audience of one. Because you know why? Only one opinion is going to matter on that day when we stand before him. There's no lifelines. Like call my brother. He knows how much I love you. Like audience of one. That's all that's going to matter. So the question coming out of that that gets casted out to all of us. Do we live for man Or do we live for Christ? Here's a better way of putting it. What matters more to you? What is actually true of you or just what others would say is true of you? So I've tried to be pretty transparent about my own story. right? I mastered the game, the Christian game. I was the best hypocrite I knew. Like, I knew what to say, how to say it, who I needed to say it to, when I needed to say it, and then all the other times I just did what I own wanted to do and followed my own fleshly desires and just know I had to keep that away from some people because there's other people that really think highly of me. And what others thought of me spiritually in this season of my life was nowhere close to what God thought of me. 
but I didn't care because so-and-so thought this way of me. And praise God, you know what he did? He exposed me to myself. He opened my eyes both to my wickedness and his grace, and he did it simultaneously, leading me to proclaim my junior year of college, Lord, deliver my soul. spoke earlier about the difference between knowing about grace or loving God and just knowing about him. And, and, and similarly, when you think about grace, it's one thing to know about it, to recognize it, and then to feel it. Like, that's what happened to me. I knew about the grace of God. I believed in it. I laid claim to it, but I wasn't truly awakened to it. Like, I didn't feel it at the level of depth where it stirred my affections for him. If you were here last week, I, I, I talked about um, the, the power of God and, and the Grand Canyon as, as an illustration, right? That five million people this year alone are going to go visit the Grand Canyon. And, and I asked why. Why do people just go like and looking at a hole in the ground? And, and I went and I loved it. Because you know why? We like feeling small. We like confronting power and grandeur in such a way where it sends a shiver up your spine. And so to go off that metaphor, the difference between knowing about grace and feeling grace is the difference between seeing a postcard of the Grand Canyon and standing at the edge of it. Like, you can be impressed by a picture. You can get an understanding of the general layout and what it looks like and the colors and the depth, and you you can explain it and act like you've been there based on the picture, But it's not until you get to the edge of a Grand Canyon and look down and all around that it's going to send a shiver up your spine. Postcard's not giving you a shiver. It's the the grandeur of actually being there and feeling your knees wobble as you look down that you understand the power and the grandeur and the majesty of the Grand Canyon. You should go. So it is with God's grace. Like one could appreciate the grace of God by seeing him. They might even be able to tell others about it based upon what they've seen or heard, but it's not until you experience grace firsthand deep into your bones that it's going to take your breath away. That God didn't just do these things, he did these things for me, for my sin. And my wickedness, that God sent his son to die for me, God loved me and chose me despite my failures and ongoing sin. And it's not until you feel it like that, that you're going to be able to say, so I'm going to walk before the Lord. And I'm going to take up my cross and follow him because the cost of carrying a cross on my back is nowhere compared to the joy it is to be before the Lord. Not just so others can see us do this, but because he sees. As I transitioned into ministry a couple years ago, I received a lot of advice from others who have been in ministry a long time. Um, A few of these things I really remember. There's one thing I remember above the most. One guy said to me, and it still sticks out, he said, Aaron, the key to ministry is to defend against your private persona drifting away from your public persona. The closer you can keep those two together, where how others see you is actually true of who you really are, the healthier your ministry is going to be. 
Don't let your private life drift from your public life. You're going to hurt yourself and a whole lot of other people in the process. And so church, how is our walk? We are saved by grace alone, by the work of Christ alone. We will proclaim that every day. But that work has given us new hearts. It's given us new desires and the strength to be able to walk in the land of the living church. How is your walk? Do our steps show the same gratitude toward God that our lips convey? Third and final pledge of gratitude that the psalmist gives is to publicly vow to the Lord. Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The psalmist stands up and gives a toast to the Lord. Like right off the bat, here's an important point here. Like if nothing else, here's what we see in this psalm. It is a song expressing uh, and, and speaking of personal salvation, and yet it includes a public proclamation. Like saving faith is personal, it is not private. All throughout Scripture, we see a trend of a personal decision to believe in God, to follow God, to believe in Jesus Christ, followed by a public proclamation of that personal faith. So it's evident here all throughout the Old Testament and then it manifests itself in the New Testament as a call to Christians to belong to a church. Especially today, especially amongst my generation and younger, it's become exceedingly popular to be like, yes, uh, Jesus is my Savior, but I don't need to be part of a church. I can YouTube and podcast my way to glory. What do I need to go to church for? I, I want to wake up early. It's Sunday. It's a beautiful day. We should be at the beach. YouTubing, not sitting in pews, right? But this is a call against that, that you cannot claim personal salvation and not be part of a church. It's all throughout the Bible. You will be hard-pressed to find scriptural evidence to say, I don't need the church. And it's commitments that a man or woman make to one another to say, I'm personally walking with Christ, you're personally walking with Christ, but we are not doing this thing alone. And there ought to be other witnesses to the vows we're making because we all know we can justify other things in our life when other people aren't around. Give yourself some time. You'll justify a good amount of sin in your life if you don't have others who are actually speaking into it. So we're in the middle of wedding season, right? Many, if not most of you, have been to a wedding this year. Others will probably be going to one soon. And you will be witnesses to the exchanging of the vows, Right? These are commitments that a man and a woman personally make to one another. And yet they do so publicly before friends and family. Like, why do they do that? Like, what, what, why not when it comes to the time of the vows, they just kind of go in the corner and whisper them to one another? It's just to one another. Like, what, why do other people need to hear that? Why is that so much a part of the tradition that, I mean, sometimes they even get mic'd up, right? And you hear word for word these vows, that, these personal vows that people are making to one another because they are personal vows that are meant to be publicly made. In the church, this is essentially what baptism is. 
is a personal proclamation of faith that is made publicly before the church and others who are witnessing it, right? Baptism does nothing to save you. We say that every time we baptism, baptize someone. This is not a chain in the link of salvation that you need to do or you're not really saved. It does nothing to guarantee it. But is this outward proclamation of an inward faith and it's meant to be public. Like, it's not possible to just baptize yourself in the bathtub. Like, where you just utter yourself, like, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and like, go underwater. Like, go ahead and do that, but just know you're just dunking your head in the bathtub. That's not baptism. There's nothing holy about this water or wherever you want to get baptized, but it is meant to be a public event. It's like getting up like this psalmist and says, hey guys, I'd like to make a toast. This is what God means to me. This is what he's done for me. I love him for saving me and I want everyone to know I'm with him now. And we see in verses 15 through 19, that's essentially what the psalmist does. We just get a a glimpse into his personal toast that he's making in the presence of his people. Lord, I'm your servant now. You have freed me from the yoke of slavery. I will gladly be yoked to your son, for his yoke is easy. His burden is light. I will live gratefully and open-handed. I will joyfully come into your courts for corporate worship and be in your midst. I'm I'm paraphrasing now. Like Some of you are like, what translation did he just jump to? Like I'm paraphrasing his toast he gives in verses 15 to 19, but it is joy-filled, and it's saying, I'm not going to do this privately. And I want everyone to know I'm a witness to the saving power of a great God. And lastly, there's this missional aspect to this third pledge that tells us in the church now, brothers and sisters, don't hide your story from the world. If you can say this morning alongside this author that I was in the pit, I had no way out, and he delivered my soul from death. Listen, you have a story the world needs to hear. Like, have you ever had a friend or someone you've known for a while, and, and, and you didn't know this one thing about them, and then somehow in passing, or you hear them saying somebody else, like something crazy about it in their past, and you're like, where did that come from? Like, how, how did you not tell me about that? Like, that's amazing. How is that not like the first thing you said to me? So I'm, I don't think he's here this morning, but Joe Morris goes to our church, right? Scored a touchdown in uh, Super Bowl in 1986 for the Giants in, in the Super Bowl that they won, has the ring. But you can know Joe for months, and he would probably never mention it to you. Like if I were Joe Morris, I'd be like, hi, my name's Joe Morris. I scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Like, what's your name? <laughs> like, like. God's grace on me was to not make me Joe Morris because I wouldn't handle that well. <laughs> I don't have that cool story to tell. But he, he, like, you could get to know him for months and all of a sudden like, see a highlight of him on TV and be like, Joe, you were in the Super Bowl. Like, you did not tell anybody about that. You had a, a friend or someone who just never told you like, a really awesome part of their story. Listen, Christians, you, have, you are a witness to what God has done and it is personal and it was a miracle. But don't let it be private. Stand up and make a toast before one another. Lay claim to Christ. Publicly vow to Christ and trust that he's going to use that to be a means of encouragement to other believers 
and also as a means to convert unbelievers. There is no such thing as a boring testimony. There is no such thing as a boring testimony. Know your story and look for opportunities to share it. Grateful living. A pledge to call on the name of the Lord. To personally walk before the Lord. And to publicly vow to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and specifically this morning for the words of Psalm 116. We thank you for the author that will be able to put the experience of your salvation to paper in such a way where we can all say amen. Father, we thank you for the stories you've given us, that you have taken us from the pit, that we were brought high after being low, and it was for your grace and for your glory. And Father, I pray for those in here who have not yet experienced saving grace. Maybe they've seen it. Maybe they could explain it, but they haven't felt it. Father, I pray this morning would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day through your word that your spirit opens up hearts to put their faith in you. We hope for that. We expectantly pray for that and boldly do so. And we do it in your name. Amen.